Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help Cam H treat addiction and build hope. Once at the Capitol, the crowd became unruly. Smashing doors and windows, invading the office of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and stealing laptops. Shots were fired inside the Capitol Hill building. A Capitol Hill police officer has died as a result of his injuries that he sustained during Wednesday's riots at the Capitol. The FBI in Washington now using Twitter to seek tips. How about the member of the mob who sat with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk? If you don't like it... Send somebody after me, but I ain't going down easy. Of course, if they arrested him on Wednesday, they wouldn't have to be looking for them now, but they are. And here's another man that they're looking for, the one who carried off a lecture. So far, nearly 100 people have been arrested and charged. But Ryan, now facing jail time, is looking for help from the president. Plus, Twitter purged. The social network deletes more than 70,000 accounts tied to QAnon. Meanwhile, Apple, Google, and Amazon web services ended their support for the social 
social media network Parler. Parler sues Amazon for suspending access to their web servers. So how far will tech giants go to keep this competitor offline? The hunt is on for the murder plotters, the pipe bomb builders, the cop assaulters, the armed terrorists who stormed Washington, D.C. So far, as I record this, they've arrested more than 100 of them. Just over 100 out of thousands of people who broke United States federal law. But I get it. They've all gone home. And we don't know exactly who was caught up in that crowd. I mean, if only we could somehow get them all into one big place where the authorities could just round them all up at once. Oh well. Spilt milk, I guess. Better late than never. Listen, uh, there, are, there are serious and unanswered questions about why law enforcement was not prepared for the mob. Members of which had been planning the whole thing online, in public, planning to kidnap and kill and commit treason for weeks. Unanswered questions about the delays in sending in the National Guard. And more unanswered questions still about why some of the cops who were there didn't do more before blood was spilled. But today, we're going to focus on what is being done now to identify the criminals who strolled out of the chambers of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives untouched after wreaking mayhem. And the work we're going to focus on, the most effective efforts in exposing these goons, it's not being done by the cops. It's being done by technologists, sort of. Researchers, analysts, maybe call them journalists. It's being done by people on the internet. It is not totally clear what to call these people. But there is a name for their tactics. It's called OSINT, Open Source Intelligence. It involves a distributed, crowdsourced, largely volunteer workforce of thousands of hobbyists, I suppose, who track down videos and pictures and satellite imagery and social media messages and put it all together in one place, index it, analyze it, and compile timelines to track individuals in the mob like walking needles in a haystack. Their goal is to match online personas to photos of faces to names of people. To take the blurry pic, the screen grab of the back of the head of a man who's assaulting a cop, and then track it back through other photos and videos until you can see the guy's face or get a better look at his clothing or a tattoo, and then scour through databases of other photos of Facebook posts, MAGA rallies, or whatever you can find until you and the thousands of people doing it with you get a name. And it better not be the wrong name. Chuck Norris was not there. Open source intelligence works best when it's done by lots of people. Ironically, it takes a mob to catch a mob. But mobs are unwieldy things. Today we're going to look closely at both the current efforts to ID the Washington mob perps, including the Canadians among them, and we're going to look way back at the roots of open source intelligence in Canada by talking to the guy who has been doing it before, I think, anybody, and doing it for over a decade. Until recently, he did so anonymously. But he is now out and doing this work under his own name. And you'll hear that name and you'll hear from him later on today. But first, I'm going to talk to Eric Toller, head of training and research at Bellingcat. Bellingcat is an investigative organization with a small staff and a huge army of volunteers, and they are the leading practitioners of open source intelligence. Their investigations have solved mysteries that stumped traditional journalists. They exposed the Russian agents who poisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny, 
and they found out that it was a Russian missile that took down that Malaysian plane in 2014. They had better reporting on the motives of the Christchurch killer than anybody, and they are now leading the efforts to identify the worst members of that mob in Washington. And to provide an accurate demographic picture of just what sort of people showed up in that mob, as you're gonna to hear today, it's not the powerless losers that you might have thought. Bellingcat takes its name from an Aesop's fable about a group of mice who decide that the only way to protect themselves against a stealthy, predatory cat is to tie a bell around its neck that'll give them a warning. But who among them, the mice ask, will take on the dangerous task of belling the cat? Eric Toller joins me from his home in Kansas City in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Alex, Gustavo Casso, Sean McLean, Sai, Nathaniel Lewis George, Kelsey Walshy, Diane Abunem, and Katie. My name is Katie. I am from Kitchener. I teach at the University of Waterloo, and I support Canada Land because it keeps me up to date on what is going on across the country. But I've kept listening and I've kept supporting because I feel like Canada Land gives me a perspective that I don't get anywhere else. Tell me what you've been doing since the assault on Capitol Hill. T take me through your process a bit. So we're finding as many photos and videos as we can of the storming, and we're trying to archive them, um, keep them retained, and um, preserve them for future historians or researchers or whatever. So a lot of this is informed by um, our work around the Charlottesville protest back in 2017. Because um, I remember when I was doing research on that, I was going through kind of, you know, during the day of and the morning after the protest, I was going through and downloading as many videos and photos and live streams as possible from the event because Heather Heyer was killed during the protests and then there were criminal charges passed and people were being fired from their jobs and all that. And the people who had been you know, holding their phones up and recording and live streaming, they were suddenly realizing like, it's probably not a good idea for me to have a video of me at this fascist rally or whatever. So they were deleting it. And I ended up saving a lot of them, but there are a ton of videos and photos that disappeared into kind of the ether of the internet, never to be seen again because people deleted them or they would be taken down by platforms as, you know, the radicalization, extremism, whatever. And the same thing here for the Capitol story. For every person who had like, you know, who had like a weapon or whatever, you had 20 people who were holding up their phones who were recording your live streaming what was going on because this is kind of a, like, kind of an internet clout um, coup attempt almost as everyone was taking photos, they were posing, they were live streaming, they're on Periscope or Parler or Facebook or whatever. So we aren't super interested in kind of the doxing efforts about identifying the individuals in here. I mean, though that's, that's interesting on its own, but that's, uh, we're more interested in the archival effort for um, current people trying to understand currently what's happening, you know, exactly what happened, who was involved, what groups, who was on the vanguard, I guess you could say, um, but also for future historians and researchers to, uh, I mean, it's, it's only been a week or so since, since the storming, but you, you can already imagine there's going to be dissertations and books and God knows how many research projects about those, you know, three, four hours of the storming. And in order for that to happen, for us to have a really um, strong understanding of exactly how it happened, what the group dynamics were, who was doing what, um, you know, th the things we don't, the insights we don't really have for other things, like imagine the Russian Revolution with people storming the Winter Palace in 1917. You know, we, of course, we have, you know, um, recollections and first-hand accounts and all that, but we don't have video footage of it. Um, but here, I'm not trying to say this is the same as the storming of the Winter Palace, but with the event of, um, you know, storming a you know, seat of power, now we have, you know, literally hundreds and, uh, 
of photos and videos and thousands of photos and videos of the event as it happened from different angles and perspectives. I can understand why you would shy away from what, what you call the doxing part of it and mm -hmm. focus on what I think is pretty much universally accepted as, as, as a public good. The fact that these documents of incredible historical importance are being deleted either by the people who shot them so because they realize they've incriminated themselves or yeah. by the deplatforming of individuals mm -hmm. and entire platforms vanishing. So there's this limited window where you can actually get the stuff that matters and so future generations can figure out what the hell happened. But come on. We're in a moment right now where we are reckoning with what actually went on. There were two guys there with like, um, like what are those plastic zipline handcuffs? Uh, right. So, so like who the hell were those guys and what were they planning? And then you go and you can go through the open source intelligence mm -hmm. and see what they were planning. They were planning to kill people. So it's not yeah. just about the doxing efforts, if we're going to call it doxing, which I think has a very negative connotation. Of course, yeah. This is about um, more than just finding out who trespassed or, you know, mm -hmm. narking on protesters who went too far. There were people there with uh, murderous intent. There were two people, or rather two, two pipe bombs that were discovered. Um, so there is a robust open source effort to identify people. Mm -hmm. There's a few Canadians who were there. Um, yeah. And and maybe, maybe Bellingcat wants to provide that visual data for anybody to do anything with. But you can't, like, you know that that people are using it right now for that explicit purpose and you're playing uh, an important role in that process of identifying the, the perps, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, it, I mean, we're trying not to facilitate the actual effort themselves because it can go haywire pretty easily, the actual um, um, doxing, I guess you could say doxing or identification efforts. But we've definitely helped with and kind of facilitated a little bit of the most extreme. Ones. So for example, uh, there's John Scott Railton, who you probably know, who's in who's at Toronto. He was working for Ronan Farrow at the New Yorker and doing some identification of some of these people who are the most egregious, I guess you could say, right? So the people who, the zip tie person who's carrying those zip tie hand, handcuffs, um, he identified um, both of them, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to do that identification, you have to have a gigantic face to work off, right? The scaffolding of, of hundreds of thousands of videos and photos, you, you can't do the identification without, without that stuff. Because again, you can't, you have to have different angles in the person's face. Maybe you can see them chatting with their friends, you know, before in the rally, like, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, that kind of thing. They're all talking to each other um, during the rally before the, before the storming. But yeah, we're not so interested in identifying the you know the random middle-aged woman who was who was carrying a flag into the Capitol and just kind of walks around in her phone and leaves. The carnivalesque atmosphere where people are filming themselves and like, wow, this is fun, um, is a social phenomenon that probably is going to be studied as well. And um, but, but but the tension when you say it can go haywire, I mean, no journalist wants to act as an arm of law enforcement, mm -hmm. and. Um, I think that that negative association with doxing is when it's these kind of, I, I hesitate to say, oh, just the everyday regular people who are storming the Capitol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't know, just reading your own accounts, a, a, a lot of a lot of retired cops and military people concerningly yeah. were there. Not even retired. <laughs> there were a lot of off-duty cops who, you know, they took some vacation days from the NYPD or Chicago PD and then, you know, flew down to DC, This, you know, this... I mean, this is a, a common misconception about these people is, you know, a lot of times, I think the Atlantic probably got a lot of flack for this and they published a story about how the people who stormed the Capitol were the, you know, these losers, these unemployed, um, I call them, I think they call them like Pornhub addicts, addicts is what they call them, uh -huh. these losers who were, you know, just have nothing else in life, whatever. No, that's not, that's not true at all. The people who were storming the Capitol, like, of course you had the losers, right? You had the, you know, the people in the mom's basement or whatever, but they were a 
big time minor- minority of the people I've looked for, the people who have been arrested and the people that we've, we've noticed who were there. Like if I were to rank from CEO company right down all the way to unemployed loser, I'd think that like the median or the aggregate of them is something like a real estate agent. There are so many real estate agents who love who who love like MAGA and QAnon stuff. That's weird. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of cops, both retired and off duty. Um, a lot, a lot, a lot of soldiers and veterans. I can't even like literal like you know Air Force lieutenants and stuff who who were who were involved here. Lots and lots of cops. A ton of uh, small business owners, um, stuff like that. So this isn't like. A lot of people trying to portray this as some kind of like populist, like grassroots, you know, like uh, coup or color revolution or whatever. And that's not true at all. The, 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 I mean, the person who was storming the Capitol was, was someone who could afford a plane ticket to go to D.C., who could take time off of work, who has vacation days, who owns a business, right? And they can go do it themselves and who can, you know, who can do all this and also, you know, flaunt, you know, pandemic and rules and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and some of whom have uh, military training, mm-hmm. they're armed, uh, yeah, some of yeah. them have the responsibility to enforce the law. That's just absolutely terrifying. I have no problem with their identities being known when they're out mm-hmm. you know, in public uh, doing these things. The work in Charlottesville, like that was a turning point where I think it slowed the, the movement of these uh, extreme right groups because that guy in the cubicle next to you is in one of those videos and there are questions and concerns about him at work the next week. And I think it it, it, it it drew into stark relief, like, sure, you're free to do various types of things in public, but there are going to be consequences. And a lot of people are going to, you know, not want to be around you or ha- or have you as an employee, if that's the case. Why are you so hesitant? Like, what, what is the worst case scenario where, where you've seen it go haywire, where you've seen things go bad with, with uh, you know, open source intelligence piling on and, you know, doxing or, or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, I mean, it could very easily go go the wrong way. I think there was an article I saw recently about some someone who I can't remember who it was, but someone was, mis- was mis- misidentified and their family is being harassed and their employer and all that stuff. So it's it's quite easy to misidentify these people. But also, on the other hand, these people are repeat offenders. For example, there's a three percenter guy who who was in the capital. He's kind of, I guess, you could say the vanguard, not to romanticize it, but like kind of in the front lines of the attack on the police and then into the capital, whatever. And if you see this guy, if you you know if you follow you know uh, militias and three percenters and that sort of thing, you, you might recognize him because he's a he's a regular in a lot of these. And his face was relatively unmasked. Um, and you know, even when he kept his face masked up, you know, a lot of times they because just like. You know, the average person, you you pull your mask down to cough or to talk to somebody or whatever, and you put it back up. And when that happens, there's a thousand cameras around you that will capture you. They just with a good shot of the face. So a lot of these people, you know, you have, you know, the boat dealership people who, um, who, who you know, kind of the middle class uh, people who do that. But you also have a lot of proud boys, uh, three percenters and um, uh, militia types who, if you search, uh, search their faces on Google and make search or if you. Um, look into you know membership roles in a previous videos and stuff. You'll see them and recognize them from pre- previous events. So a lot of the doxing of the most violent people is not super fraught. There's one guy, for example, who was um, pulling the zip ties and he um, was wearing the exact same clothes uh, at in the Capitol as he did in other like anti-lockdown protests in Tennessee. Like he wore like the exact same clothes um, over time. Um, so, and you know, you have things like tattoos and birthmarks and stuff like that it helps too. But when you wear the exact same clothes in multiple prote- public protests, then you know, it makes it kind of easy to identify someone. So for that kind of stuff, when it's like very obvious, right, this, this guy also brought his mom to the protest. So that's, you know, you look and you find his Facebook page and you see the, him with his mom, the exact same person. And he brought his mom. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy who, one of the, the guys in the famous photo of the guy carrying the, he was carrying the zip ties on the floors of Congress. I think it, most people have seen that yeah. kind of famous photo. 
um, yeah, he brought his mom to the, to the protest. You, and there's other videos of him walking from the Trump rally to the to the Capitol, and he's walking with his mom. He's been arrested now, but if you find his Facebook, uh, him and his mom, you know, f- pose together photo after photo. So both in term both in terms of being confident that it's a positive ID and that this yeah. is a person who like should be exposed, you feel pretty good about that one. Another challenge, though, for you, I mean, a lot of people are celebrating right now the deplatforming of tens of thousands of uh, QAnon accounts, tr- Trump's many accounts, Parler itself being booted off of, of the Internet functionally. But that just erases tons of data that is of uh, high interest and value to you. Yeah. So there's a few things going on right now. So there's self-deletion, self-censorship, right, where people who come home realizing I don't want to lose my job, I better delete this video, right? So that's one thing. There's platform-based stuff that's kind of anti-extremism. So this is something we dealt with a lot when we look at things like conflict and war videos and uh, war crimes and things like that. So platform-based stuff. That's happening now at the Capitol protest where Facebook specifically is taking down some photos and videos of the storming just because it shows illegal activity and radicalization and all that. Parler was nuked. Um, as everyone knows, it's taken down. But most of the stuff has been retained. People managed to scrape pretty much everything off the site. It was like pretty much like run off a of WordPress site practically. And so it was very easy to scrape everything. So, for example, you know, we went through and looked at every video on the 6th, on the day of the storming, that was um, had geo-coordinates near D.C., near the Capitol. And we have a few hundred or a few thousand of those. Um, a handful of them, like I think maybe 10 or so, were actually inside of the Capitol. But some of them are really interesting. It shows them you know, fighting with the cops. And one of them, I think they were in, like, the subway, kind of, like, underneath, underneath it. And they were, like, uh, there's a really crazy video. Like, the cops are trying to shut the door to keep them from coming out. But then they come and push the door up, and they threw a chair at the cops, and the cops retreated and everything. So yeah, there's some crazy videos that weren't seen before because they were relatively obscure on Parler because Parler is not, wasn't very big. It, it, the site was horrible to use. So a lot of stuff that even got uploaded were, wasn't seen because the site was constantly going down. It was hard to use. And the search function was like non-existent too. So a lot of really interesting videos were on Parler that are now being discovered from this scrape um, that um, just because Parler wasn't a super popular platform. And the same videos are put onto YouTube or Instagram. They might have spread a lot more. Just one last question for you. If in your research and and your colleagues' research, you come across plans for something like the siege on Washington that have uh, plans for something that hasn't happened yet, what do you do with that information? I mean, we probably, I, I don't know, post it online. Like, we don't report it to the cops or your feds or anything like that. I know some people do, but we don't. Like, we haven't sent anything to the FBI tip line and we haven't sent anything to the cops or anything just because, I mean, this is not like sophisticated like this like if you just search the word capital like you know both, both capital with an al and ol because they misspell it too on the donald or on parlor from um, you know the week before i mean they were just you know it was hashtags during the capital like this wasn't a secret right it's not like you know we had the secret information and then our tip will blow it up like they have billions and billions of dollars of surveillance and domestic surveillance and you know uh, the patriot act and everything else where they can have all these broad sweeping powers and yet you know these people are just sitting here on the Donald and Parler saying, hashtag storm the Capitol, here's a map, this is what we're going to do, this is exactly how we're going to do it, and then they did exactly what they said they were going to do, right? So now we don't report anything to see it, because even if we did it, what, what would happen? So just keep that in mind when the next, you know, when, when, they, when they pass the domestic uh, surveillance bill in, in about six months or so to prevent this from happening again, just keep that in mind that they already have these things and nothing happened. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, 
and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. The digital Nazi hunt began long before Bellingcat, and a big part of it began in Canada. Since 2007, a janky-looking blog called Anti-Racist Canada has been exposing area Aryans and other homegrown goons. At first, it was a live journal site. Then, it moved to Blogger. Over years in which few in the media were taking the radical right seriously, the anonymous author of Anti-Racist Canada spent thousands of hours researching and posting thousands of articles on the various hate groups of Canada and their members. He built up a sizable audience of law enforcement, of journalists who sometimes borrowed his reporting, often without credit, and of the racists themselves who poured over every word posted on anti-racist Canada and who sent its anonymous author death threats on the regular. And then, last January, he was exposed. A post on Rebel News ran with the headline, Antifa Informant Exposed, School Teacher Kurt Phillips of Drumheller. Kurt Phillips is the formerly anonymous author of Anti-Racist Canada and currently a founding board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. My name is Kurt Phillips. I am a high school teacher in uh, southern Alberta. And what do you do when you're not teaching high school? When I'm not teaching high school, I'm hunting Nazis. You've been hunting Nazis on the internet since uh, before it was cool. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when I was in University of Regina, uh, I you know, started following and keeping tabs on some of these hate groups, partly because I was just fascinated by the mentality, but also kind of the horror that these are people who are also harming people. I'm catching you at a particular moment. Have you been involved uh, over the past uh, week uh, and a bit in investigating the people who took part in the siege on the U.S. Capitol? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically some of the Canadians we know were there. 
Yeah, yeah, I have been actually. And, and there are a bunch of us who are with the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, we're trying to figure out specifically who the guy with the uh, the Canadian flag is. We've got some leads. We're kind of trying to track those down. Nothing definitive yet, but he's left some breadcrumbs for us to follow. I just spoke to a gentleman from Bellingcat, and, and they're kind of um, pioneering this whole new field of uh, OSINT, of open source intelligence gathering. I guess you were doing that before it was called that. Uh, apparently, yes. <laughs> uh, I don't think I ever had the quite the quite level skills that some of the people had. I was more of a, you know, when you're trying to crack a safe, just trying every single combination. If you looked at the blog, uh, I mean, it was obvious I was not particularly technically savvy. Uh, you had a very homemade spot on the web at a time when the, the, the Nazis and the extreme right had their own kind of homemade forums. And I guess everyone was using aliases before social media, you know, distributed that to, to the masses. And how do you reverse engineer people like by their by their like little breadcrumbs they drop about their personal identities or their writing styles? Or are you looking at like technical data like IP addresses? The way I did it was, I mean, especially early on, they would happily provide information to me initially. Uh, they would post their pictures on Stormfront, for example, or they would share their, uh, you know, social media, Facebook, for example, when it was first uh, becoming, you know, the big thing at, at the time. When they started to kind of hide things a little bit, then you kind of go in a little bit more surreptitiously. I create socks for, on social media, for example, um, and I get into their groups. I never interact with them. I, I'm, you know, the only interaction I will do will be, well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate this. I'm hope I could, you know, contribute to the cause. And then I stay silent and let them speak and and kind of record, either mentally or physically, what they say and what other little hints they give me as to who they might be. Uh, of course, on Facebook, some people still provide their real names, their real identities. Those that don't usually provide enough information within a few months maybe a few years to be able to figure out who they are. And I always was very patient. But by creating socks, you mean sock puppet accounts, which I guess in traditional journalism we'd call going undercover. Precisely, yes. Back to the siege on the Capitol, you can look at the breadcrumbs that people have left afterwards, and it seems like everybody there was telling on themselves and documenting their own crimes. But there were um, pre-breadcrumbs, there was planning, and yet it seemed to catch everybody unawares. Did you know that was going to happen before it happened? I think most people who were in this world knew what's going to happen. Uh, maybe not to the degree or in the way that it did, but we knew something was going to happen. There was chatter online for weeks prior to this. And one of the things that was always frustrating about to me about the, when I was writing the blog was that I could see a member of a hate group committing a particular crime, and they'll report on it, but they don't mention the fact that he belongs to, say, you know, Aryan Guard or Blood and Honor or Volksfront. So there's no context to it. I mean, they, they attack somebody of color, but they only talk about the assault. They don't talk about it as if it was a potential hate crime. And I see more of that here. People want to believe that this is novel. This is not something that's new. And certainly, you know, not something that white people do. I mean, white people don't riot. They don't do any of this kind of stuff. That's only, you know, those people over there. Uh, and the reality is, I mean, we've seen it year after year, decade after decade. This is the same thing that's happening. And it's it's often frustrating when uh, you see it, you've reported upon it, you tell people, you provide information, and nobody or very few people appear to act on it. And and what do you do when you learn something, when you learn somebody's identity or, or of a plan? Uh, what do you do with that information? Well, when I wrote for the blog... Um, if I was 100% certain of the identity of the person, I would you know, 
post to the blog. I would never post any other identifiable information in terms of their address or their phone number, but I would say this person's involved in this and people need to be aware of it in their community. I knew the blog was viewed by a number of people, activists certainly, but also law enforcement. That, you know, that wasn't a surprise. You know, since leaving the blog, I had a number of people in law enforcement actually contact me and see if there was anything else I could provide to them, interestingly enough. It was always, always very funny. I also had people who were in these kind of hate groups uh, follow the blog. I think they, they viewed it as their version of the National Enquirer, keep up on their, their uh, rivals within the hate group movement. So so you would say uh, it's not like you'd call the cops and it's not like you'd say, let's go to their house. And maybe if I'm hearing you right, some things that people do these days when they're you know calling people's employers and saying, hey, how do you feel about employing a Nazi? You were just making the information available and saying, hey, just FYI, this, uh, this might be your neighbor. This is their name. They are a member of this Aryan Nazi group. So let it be known. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. Very rarely would I would I call people to action. Uh, the only times I could really remember would be when I found somebody that was in the military, for example, and say, you know, this is a person that's that's in a position of authority, possibly training for nefarious purposes in the future. Contact the Department of Defense. Uh, I was thinking one person who was involved in the Navy, for example, a number of years ago, and then another individual who, you know, to the credit, they did act upon it, and the media acted upon it. Was a, a young reservist who was planning on attending one of the White Pride marches in Calgary, I think it was in 2011 or 2012. You know, the uh, media actually covered that. They talked about this, and, and uh, a spokesperson with, with the Department of Defense uh, said they were looking into it, and that person ultimately never did go to that rally. So your information has been useful to uh, authorities. It's been useful to law enforcement. It's been reported on by the press. D- does that happen a lot? Do you, do you get into active partnerships with journalists or do journalists just you know, use information that you, that you sleuth out? I, I think for the most part, especially early on, they found that they would use it. I wasn't necessarily contacted, but I knew quite often some of the so- sources they got were, would be the blog. Um, later on, as, as, as I became, I guess, more established, uh, wasn't going anywhere. Uh, I think you know, a lot of journalists had more more comfortable contact than me. Kurt, you you are a hated person by hateful people uh, and some dangerous ha- hateful people. Have you ever come face to face with any of them? Um, no, which is in some ways surprising. I mean, when I was initially doxxed, I, I I was certainly nervous that something would happen. In some ways, I was kind of blessed by the pandemic. Uh, you know, other other news took priority. Do your students know about this part of your life? Well, they didn't then. They did when I got doxxed. <laughs> I've always made a point of not including my political leanings in my classroom. But, I mean, being opposed to racism isn't, you know, well, it is a political issue, but isn't a, a partisan political issue. A person on the political left should be as opposed to racism as a person on the political right, for example. I don't think you have to explain. You know, I, I think it's okay for a teacher to be opposed to racism. Precisely. Uh, I, I certainly thought so. But it was funny when I got doxxed. My students were actually in the middle of a diploma exam. But I said to them, so you may have heard some things about me. Just know that I, I always make a point of not bringing my politics in the classroom. And hopefully you don't you don't feel uncomfortable around me. And one of my students, uh, you know, I had a, a large number of Filipino students in the classroom. She said, Mr. Phillips, we're OK. You're good. You referred to getting doxxed. I know that you did this work anonymously for a long time. In fact, you were on an episode of our podcast, Commons, under a pseudonym. Anything you want to say about being exposed in that whole experience? It was a surreal experience. Um, I had always assumed the possibility of being doxxed. I 
I, I knew people were looking for me and I knew I was pretty good at keeping my identity secret. I had these groups were kind of looking down every single rabbit hole that I'd left for them. Um, so I had, I, you know, prepared for scenarios A, B, C, D, and E. I hadn't prepared for scenario F. And that was the one that kind of threw me for a loop. A person who I one time thought as a friend released the information about me in a purely malicious, you know, intent. I got personally very little response from, from these groups and these individuals. I got a few hate messages sent to my real social media Facebook page. But for the most part, they were being sent to my pace employment, my, my family, my parents got, got a bunch of messages saying that they couldn't wait to have somebody put a bullet in my head. Uh, but, but I got very little of it. Um, uh, it was like being at the center of a hurricane. Yeah, it was like being at the center of a hurricane and seeing everything whipping around you, but not having the power to stop it. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's sort of like sometimes when these things happen, people say, well, look, if you just close your eyes and pretend it isn't happening, has anything really changed? Uh, sticks and stones, right? No, this actually does have tremendous impact. I mean, for your parents to be told that it doesn't take a lot to make people live in fear. I mean, I'm sure that was must have been incredibly stressful for them and for my for my younger brother, but they dealt with it very well, all things considered. Um, and my mother, who, God love her, she's 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 got a bit of a mouth on her too. When she sees something wrong on the internet, she wants to correct it. Uh, and uh, you know, she's very much a big supporter of social justice, and she was discreet. She she sent the information to the appropriate people. And I'm, I don't doubt that they got a lot more than they told me and are kind of holding back because it's uh, it was tough and they, they didn't want to cause me any more uh, anxiety than I was already going through. Can you talk a little bit about like, I don't know, the hot new trends you've noticed in racism? Like you, you've seen this like go from like just the sweatiest armpits of the Internet to, I don't know, larger sweaty armpits. I don't know what the analogy is, but you've seen this thing explode. You've seen the look of it, the feel of it, the the, the people, who they are. All of that has changed, and it's has it gone mainstream? I, I don't know. It seems like a lot bigger than it was when you started. How would you describe the arc of this whole thing? I think these these movements always come in waves. There's an uptick and, a, and, and eventually a decline. You know, if you want to even go back to the KKK of the 1920s, I mean, at one point there were 25,000 members in Saskatchewan, and within a few years, it had declined to almost nothing. The Heritage Front, by 1992-93, it was at its height, and then it declined precipitously. And right now we're on a particularly, you know, long-lasting and very high wave. Um, I've told people that things were easy when I first started. Uh, you knew who the bad guys were. They were the, you know, they they dressed stereotypically in leather bomber jackets, shaved heads, Doc Martens. One of the trends that we've see, seen is the radicalization of people who wouldn't normally have gone down that route. Uh, social media has done an incredible amount of damage to our society as a result of this. The, we have uh, at our fingertips access to more information than we've ever had in human history, but also access to more disinformation and, and bad players who are willing and knowledgeable enough to be able to use that to manipulate people. Some of my own relatives have got caught up into the QAnon conspiracy. That's one of the big ones, of course, the, this, this overriding, overarching conspiracy theory that encompasses all others. And if you're a rational person just looking at it from a distance, you they so you think that the world is controlled by satanic, pedophile, child-eating Satanists. Okay, 
that doesn't make any sense. But Twitter and Facebook and other platforms are now trying to put the genie back in the bottle. They could have done something long before, but they chickened out on that. And they created a monster. And we're dealing with repercussions. And we'll be dealing with those repercussions for years. You know, Trumpism isn't dead. It's, it's just taking a different form now. Can you talk a little bit about that shift from encountering people as mysterious, malicious, uh, other people who need to be unmasked, but then seeing people in your family start to nibble at the that which leads to that or, or maybe is, is already a part of it, the, you know, QAnon being kind of like a popularized entry point to these theories. You teach high school students. You teach young people who are trying to make sense of the world. I'm just curious if that whole process of radicalization is uh, something that you contend with much? What I do in, in my classroom is, you know, like any teacher, we, we, deal, we teach how to critically think, how, how to use our critical thinking skills. And discussion of, well, what is a proper website? What is a proper source of information? What is it? What is trying to manipulate people? So what do they, I do with my own students is what I hope people will do just naturally with, with their own families. I view the QAnon and, and other similar conspiracy theories related to it, perhaps, as, I don't know, you've, you've probably heard of examples of people who are in a riot, and they're acting as as a group, not as individuals. By getting people to think for themselves and by calling them out, you begin to get them think and kind of move out of that, possibly, to, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. I wonder if it works. I, I remember that quote, you can't reason someone out of a belief that they didn't reason their way into. That's true. And it's one of those things I've been trying to contend with. I think we all have in, in, in all of our lives. We have, I think most of us have loved ones who might have diff, different opinions politically, but you still love them. Um, now they have gone in such a direction that it's really hard to view them as the same person. And I wish I had a ready answer of how to deal with that, particularly those people who have already gone down those rabbit holes. At this point, I'm trying to prevent people from going down in my own life. Yeah, well, you're doing two things. I mean, what you do in the classroom is different than what you do online and trying to engage people in critical thinking, which is difficult because some of the impulses that lead people to these conspiracies are the right impulse. You should question people in power. If you think that the posture of, of the Clintons as people who are trying to help the regular folk is um, you know, perhaps hypocritical or, or false, you're right. Investigate that. Interrogate that. But then... It, it, it just goes wrong so quickly. And then on the other hand, you're online and what you do there, you're not trying to inform, as I understand it, um, or talk people out of their beliefs. If I am not mistaken, you're trying to publicly shame them. And I, and I say that without judgment. Perhaps we need more shame. And I wonder, in your opinion, what works better against radicalized racism, uh, public shaming or criminalization? Well, that's tricky, right? Because, I mean, on the one hand, I don't like shaming people. I don't like embarrassing people. But on the other hand, if you have beliefs that are so harmful that people act on them, that people are willing to hurt people because of those beliefs, I think they need to be exposed. I think that what I've been doing, and again, I can't speak for anybody else, but what I was doing was helpful. Um, one of the things that was really satisfying for me over the years were people who had been in hate groups who got out of them, and partly because of the things I was writing about. People began to kind of think about their values. Why did they believe this in the first place? Why did they uh, go down this 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 road? 
And a lot of them contacted me and saying that, you know, I was one of the people who helped get them out of it by getting the question, their assumptions. Um, a lot of these young people were, were quite young when they got in, uh, especially initially when I first started the blog. They were people who, young people who were really looking for a place to belong, a place, a place that was kind of a home for them. I think maybe the elephant in the room is a lot of people aren't that smart and a lot of people don't want to get smart if there's some benefit to being a part of something. One thing that is really underexamined is how much fun these trolls and griefers and racists have had in recent years, um, seeing that they can like change the world from their desktops. I think that the the effect and the value of what you and others do is make it less fun. Like, dude, you're not Batman. You don't get to have a secret identity. And And I think what you're doing there is fighting fire with fire and that it was some level of socialization and uh, the appeals of, of that club that made that um, uh, a thing in the first place. And it's sort of an assertion of a wider socialization, which is, well, here's what society thinks of you. As far as I could tell, that's the that's the most effective. That's what worked after Charlottesville was you don't get to just be in a, a, a secretly in this club. Right. And I think that's the thing you're trying to get is that if you exposed to people like these are people who truly believe and 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 a lot of time a lot of them really genuinely believe that everybody feels the same way they do because of the echo chamber that they're in another reason why i wrote i i published the blog and wrote articles for the blog was as you said to to get that information out that no this is not mainstream this is not what everybody believes and especially as things evolved i mean as i as 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 the you know the neo-nazi type of racist became less prevalent they were always still there but they weren't as significant there you know now the the soldiers of odin the uh the yellow vesters these other groups that emerged uh presenting themselves as concerned citizens about our society and what's going on with it but you know dig a little bit deeper there's the same anti-semitism same islamophobia the same racism you see prior to that and you know trying to expose and say look you believe that you are the mainstream you are not the mainstream people do not agree with you uh the most most people do not agree with you. You know, you're, you'll find your subculture somewhere online, but that doesn't mean that that is what most people accept. And the 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 thing about that is that too many people in 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 Canada, the United States, around the world, don't know about this subculture. They don't know about these these kind of groups that are around. It's it's very easy to you know, to ignore it and 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 believe that it's fringe because it is fringe. But as we saw in in Washington D.C. at the Capitol building. Even fringe groups could cause a lot of damage. They could be very dangerous. Why do you think we, we generate so many of these people in Canada? Like We seem to produce comedians and, and, and bigots and extremists. I'm thinking everybody from Gavin McInnes and Faith Goldie. And there's a spectrum, I suppose. And heaven forbid that I paint them all with the same brush. But there are, you know, soldiers of Odin, people we've mentioned, and then um, more mainstreamized versions of, I think, far-right media sources, rebel media. It goes on and on, yellow vests. What's the deal with Canada and this stuff? Well, Canada really has punched above its weight in this kind of world, which is, you know, sad. But I think part of that is because the Canadian belief that this doesn't exist here. We we, we ignore it. We don't acknowledge it occurs. And when you don't acknowledge something as possible, it allows it to take place. I mean, they rec a lot of Americans recognize this as a part of the American landscape. Canadians, we like to be smug and think, no, that's, that's something that happens in the United States. It doesn't happen here. 
and in our smugness, we allow it to to fester without really, you know, putting a spotlight on it and and and, and preventing it from occurring. Finally, I just wonder, like personally, uh, no one gets out of anything unscathed. And you know, what what do they say? Like, you know, stare into the void; the void stares back, and wrestle not with monsters, lest you become one. Do you ever get tired of spending so much time with these people? You know, watching them, reading them, tracking them. Is it something you've thought about? You know, hanging up your cleats. Well, when I started the blog, I, I always talk about I don't have no ego. People want to use the information for whatever purpose, uh, as long as it's a useful purpose, journalist, what have you. I'm fine with that. But I, I did have an ego. I, I really believed that was untouchable. I could look at these individuals and groups almost from an academic point of view and emotionally detach myself from it. Over the years, it became really apparent that that's not possible. And Towards 2016, I was really beginning to feel it. And I was thinking then of hanging things up then. I, I had done my time. I'd fought the good fight. I you know, lasted longer than most uh, uh, anti-racist activists do online. So I thought, well, you know, I'll wait for Trump's inevitable defeat and things will calm down a little bit and I could you know, bow out gracefully. And that didn't ultimately happen. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I burnt out. Um, I couldn't go full out like I had been. Like I was produ- producing at one point, you know, 150, 200 articles uh, a year, uh, you know, exposing these kind of groups. Um, I I don't think I could have get, kept up that pace for another 12 years. <laughs> it must have been lonely work and very specific work that I'm not sure many others were doing for a long time. Um, it, it seems like a whole practice is developing around it and there are funded organizations and very sophisticated new techniques. Um, Bellingcat, just one group among many, and then it's, this work is getting distributed among so many people. I, I wonder if that might a way in which you, you could feel good about passing the baton onto the next generation of digital Nazi hunters. That's true. I when I first started, I really was essentially the only only game in town. But yeah, I think one of the things I really appreciate seeing is the change, not just in online activists and the groups that have established, like the Canadian Anti Hate Network, for example, is just one among many. But even the journalism, I think, is, is improving, too. It's not where it should be quite yet, but I think there's a greater recognition that these are groups that need to be dealt with, and these they, they are worthy reporting. Um, when I first started, I would send information to journalists, friendly journalists, who are interested in the subject matter, who are told by their editors, well, Canada doesn't really have a problem with racism. Nobody's going to be interested in reading that. So it got shelved. We don't see it being shelved as much now. Well, that is really interesting. And it's really interesting how the suppression of stories like that feed right back into the conception that we don't have things like that here. Exactly. And that was one of the things that always frustrated me. Like, you say we don't have racism. I'm showing you we have racism. We have a lot of it. Can't publish it. No racism here. Precisely. That is your Canada land. Listen, if this show has become uh, one of the ways in which you get your information each week, I want you to think about supporting us because, of course, we do need support to do this journalism, and it's so easy to give us uh, $5 a month and get an ad-free feed and uh, other stuff when you go to canadaland.com slash join or just click on the link in the show notes. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, which is also a great way to stay in touch with everything that's going on because it summarizes all of our podcasts and articles each week. Our producers this week are Kasia Mihailovic and Rosalind Kufour. Mixing by Jeremy Kessler. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. 
Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it.